Hello, everyone. Welcome to the magnificence of mathematics. I'm your host, Eddie Kingston. Today, we'll be talking about my favorite subfield of math, probability. You're most likely already intuitively familiar with probability, say when you're flipping a coin. You know that there's at least roughly a 50% chance of the coin landing on heads and a 50% chance of the coin landing on tails. But here's a head scratcher. Is it true that events that have a 0% probability of happening can still happen? Obviously not, right? Anything with a 0% chance of happening can't happen. You can't randomly choose dragon in a game of rock, paper, scissors. Well, it might surprise you that the answer to the question I just posed is, in fact, yes. Let's build up to this. Suppose you randomly pick a number, either 1 or 2, with equal probability. That is, the probability of picking the number 1 is 1 half, and the probability of picking the number 2 is 1 half. Now, suppose you randomly pick a number, either 1, 2, or 3, with equal probability. Then the probability of picking the number 1, or 2, or 3, is 1 third, which is smaller than 1 half. If you randomly pick a number 1, 2, 3, or 4 with equal probability, the probability of picking the number 1 is 1 over 4, which again is smaller than 1 third and 1 half. At this point, you might have noticed two things. First, the probability of picking the number 1 from the numbers 1, 2, 3, all the way up to some positive whole number n is 1 over n, since there are n numbers to choose from. Second, this probability gets smaller as n gets larger. Now, what if you wanted to choose a number from the set of all positive integers, 1, 2, all the way up to infinity? Since there are an infinite amount of numbers to choose from, the probability of choosing the number 1, or any number for that matter, is 1 over infinity, which is just 0. Wait, huh? How could it be 0 when we're still choosing a number? Well, if the probability in question had been anything other than zero, there would be some number n that describes the amount of numbers we're choosing from. But we just said that we're choosing from the infinite list of positive integers, so this can't be the case. Therefore, we literally have a 0% chance of choosing any positive integer whatsoever, but we still do choose a number. Argument I just gave is an albeit hand-wavy proof by contradiction, and the underlying idea behind all of this is the idea of a limit, which is one of the fundamental building blocks of calculus and beyond. In a similar vein, it's also true that events with 100% probability don't necessarily happen. Suppose you want to avoid choosing the number 1 from the numbers 1, 2, and 3. The probability of avoiding the number 1 is 2 thirds, because you have two favorable outcomes out of three possible outcomes. If you want to avoid choosing the number 1 from 1, 2, 3, and 4, that probability is 3 fourths, which is greater than 2 thirds, because you have three favorable outcomes out of four possible outcomes. Then for any positive integer n, the probability of avoiding the number 1 from the numbers 1, 2, up to n is n minus 1 divided by n, which gets larger as n gets larger. You might notice that this probability gets closer and closer to 1, but never actually reaches it unless you have the infinite set of all positive integers and want to avoid choosing the number 1. So the probability of avoiding the number 1, or any number for that matter, is 1, but we still don't avoid picking a number altogether. How cool is that? 
Want another counterintuitive way probability works? You might have heard of the famous Monty Hall problem inspired by Let's Make a Deal host Monty Hall, who ran the show from 1963 until 1987. If you're unfamiliar with the show or the problem itself, imagine you're put in front of three doors. The host, Monty Hall, tells you that behind one of the doors is a brand new car. Behind the other two doors are goats. Your task is to pick the door the car is hiding behind. Let's say you pick door one. Monty then opens door three, revealing a goat. Now, Monty gives you a choice. Do you want to stick with door one or change your door to door two? The problem is, given all this information, would it be in your best interest to switch or to stick with your original choice? Your knee-jerk reaction might be that it doesn't matter whether you stick with your first choice or switch, since now there's only two doors the car could be behind and it's a 50-50 chance. But it turns out that that's wrong. There is a 2 in 3 chance that switching will net you the car. To explain this, it might be easier to think about the game as if there were 100 doors to choose from, 99 goats and 1 car. If you pick door 36, and Monty opens every door except door 36 and door 67, at this point you might be inclined to think, yeah, I'm switching. There's only a 1 in 100 chance I was right to begin with. I probably guessed wrong and the car is actually behind door 67. And you're right. Given the other 98 doors that have opened, the probability that the door you first chose was right all along is only 1 out of 100, meaning the probability that door 67 was the right door is 99 out of 100. If we scale this back to the original problem, the probability that the door you first chose was right all along is 1 out of 3, meaning the probability that the car is behind the other unopened door is 2 out of 3. If you think about randomly choosing one door out of three or a hundred or however many as an experiment, this paradox became a thing because when thinking about probabilities and what it would be better to do, people thought about the experiment as if the start of the game didn't happen. They thought of the experiment as having started at the point where they have to choose to either stick with their door or change it, which is where they get 50% from. But if you think about the experiment as starting when you first choose a door, then you only have a 1 in 3 or 1 in 100 or 1 in however many chance of choosing the right door on the first try. This is all well and good, but where did any of this come from? Why study probability in the first place? Probability came from the desire to quantify uncertainty, in particular when it comes to gambling. In the mid-1600s, Gerolamo Cardano showed the use of defining odds as the ratio of the number of favorable outcomes to the number of unfavorable outcomes. So, for example, 1 to 1 odds means there's one favorable outcome and one unfavorable outcome. And around the same time, French mathematicians Pierre de Fermat and Blaise Pascal wrote to each other and laid the foundations of probability as we know it. In particular, Blaise Pascal is famous for what's known as Pascal's Triangle, which tells you how many ways you can pick a certain number of items from a larger set of items. The reason it's called a triangle is because you can write out these numbers as if you were building a side of a pyramid, i.e. a triangle from the top down. For example, the top of the triangle, called row zero, is just one because there is only one way to pick zero items from zero items. That's just doing nothing. Similarly, the row below, row one, has a 1 on the left and a 1 right next to it. Because again, there's only one way to pick 0 items from a set of 1 item, which is to just do nothing, and one way to pick 1 item from that set, which is just picking that item. Now for row 2, there's a 1 on either end because there's only one way to pick 0 items from a set of 2, but not doing anything, and only one way to pick 2 items 
from a set of two by picking both items. And a two in the middle because there's two ways to pick one item from a set of two, picking one thing or the other. For row three, there's once again a one on either end, one way to pick nothing and one way to pick everything, and two threes in the middle. Three ways to pick one object and three ways to pick two objects. That is, three ways to leave one object out. Let's recap. For row 0, we have a 1. For row 1, we have a 1 and a 1, which would sandwich the 1 from row 0 if row 0 was brought down. For row 2, we have a 1, 2, and 1, with the 2 sandwiched between the two 1s from row 1. Row 3 reads 1, 3, 3, 1, and so on. If you write these out, or just look up the triangle, you might notice that if you take any two adjacent numbers in a certain row, and look at the number in the row below that's sandwiched between those two numbers. The sandwich number is the sum of the two numbers directly above it. So if you look at the left side of row 2 and row 3, you see a 1 and 2 in row 2, a 1 on the far left in row 3, and a 3 between the 1 and the 2 in row 2, and 1 plus 2 is 3. Another way these are read is in the choose notation. So row 2 can be read as 2 choose 0, which equals 1, 2 choose 1, which equals 2, and 2 choose 2, which equals 1. 2 choose 1, for example, can be interpreted as from a set of two objects, choose one of them. This triangle is crucial for beginning to understand the field of combinatorics, which is what mathematicians fancy call counting. If you were to take a beginning college-level probability class, you'd likely encounter basic combinatorics at the beginning of the class and be able to answer questions like, if you have a hand of five standard playing cards, What's the probability of having two aces? To answer this, you want two of the four aces from the deck in your hand, so there's four choose two, which is six ways to choose the aces for your hand. Now you don't want any more aces, so you have to pick three non-ace cards out of the remaining 48 possible cards. So you have 48 choose three, which equals 17,296 ways to pick the remaining cards. Multiplying these together means you have 103,776 favorable outcomes. Since you have 52 cards, and you choose 5 of them for your hand, you have 52 choose 5, which equals 2,598,960 total possible outcomes. So the answer we're looking for is the number of favorable outcomes divided by the number of possible outcomes, giving us 103,776 divided by 2,598,960, which comes out to be slightly less than 4%. If you've ever played poker or Powerball or something, this is how the probability of certain hands or certain amounts of numbers matched are calculated. If I haven't broken your brain by this point, I want to talk a bit about how mathematicians think of probability. Two of the famous mathematicians to get the ball rolling are Andrei Markov and Andrei Kolmogorov in the early 1900s. Markov was largely responsible for the development of stochastic processes, which are sequences of random events that happen over time. Going back to our coin flipping example, suppose you play a game where you win $1 every time the coin lands on heads, and you lose $1 every time the coin lands on tails. The amount of money you win or lose is a stochastic process. You can map out how the game goes over time, and you'll get a different map every time you play the game, assuming you play enough, of course. Stochastic processes can be used to model all kinds of things like wait times and even stock prices. Kolmogorov established the foundations of modern probability via measure theory. What is measure theory, you may ask? Well, a measure is how mathematicians generalize the notions of measuring things as you know them, like areas, volumes, and masses. 
To define a measure, a measure space, and a probability space, we need three key ingredients. The first ingredient is a set, which is a collection of distinct objects, say numbers. So let's just say we have the set containing the numbers 1, 2, and 3. These are our elements in our set. Let's call this set X. The second ingredient is what's known as a sigma algebra. This is a collection of subsets of our original set, meaning a collection of sets that comprise either part of or all of our original set. This sigma algebra satisfies three important properties. The first is that the entire set X is an element of our sigma algebra. The second property is that the sigma algebra is closed under complements, meaning if any subset of X is in our sigma algebra, then so is every element in X outside of that subset. For example, if the set containing just the number 1 is in our sigma algebra, then so is the set containing the numbers 2 and 3. An immediate consequence of this second property is that the set containing nothing, or the so-called empty set, is in our sigma algebra. Finally, the third property is that if you have a countable collection of subsets in our sigma algebra, meaning you can assign each subset a number, then the union of those subsets is also in the sigma algebra. This just means you're able to combine elements from two or more distinct subsets into one big subset. So in our example, since we said the set containing 1 and the set containing 2 and 3 are both in the sigma algebra, the set containing 1, 2, and 3 is in the sigma algebra. But we do that anyway since that's just the original set X, which we established was in the sigma algebra via the first property. Okay, let's take a step back. So far we have two ingredients, a set X and a collection of subsets of X called a sigma algebra, satisfying three different properties. The third and final ingredient is what's known as a measure. A measure is a function that takes in a subset of x from our sigma algebra and outputs either a real number, negative infinity, or positive infinity. You can assign values to these sigma algebra elements in any way as long as it obeys three rules. First, the measure of any subset has to be greater than or equal to zero. Second, the measure of the empty set is zero. Third, the measure of the union of disjoint subsets, meaning subsets that don't share any elements, is equal to the sum of the measures of the disjoint subsets. So say you have two subsets, the interval 0 to 1 inclusive and the interval 1 to 2 inclusive. If you picture these two intervals on a number line, you might say the distance between 0 and 1 is 1 and the distance between 1 and 2 is 1. So the distance between 0 and 2 is just 1 plus 1 equals 2. So these three ingredients, a set, a sigma algebra, and a measure, come together to create what's known as a measure space. This general notion of a measure space is important in analysis, which you can think of as an extension and or generalization of calculus. A probability space is just a measure space where the measure of the whole set X is equal to 1. We can think of probabilities as measures, and the set of all possible outcomes of an experiment as our set X. For example, flipping a coin once has two possibilities, heads or tails, and we can ignore the possibility of the coin landing on its side and say the probability of getting either heads or tails is 1 or 100%. The assignment of probability to certain events are usually determined by distributions. Think bell curves if you've ever seen those. I'll talk more about distributions next time. Komogoro was able to use this framework to establish the foundations of all modern probability, but to talk about it much further requires ideas from calculus, which I'll talk about in upcoming episodes. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Magnificence of Mathematics. In the next episode or two, I'll talk more about statistics, my time in grad school, and advice for undergrads and grad students in general. Hope to see you then. Tuning into this episode proudly presented by the APNM Group, a subsidiary of Algebra Productions LLC. We strive to produce content that informs, entertains, and adds value to your day. We value your input and would be delighted to hear your thoughts in the comments about this episode. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please engage with us in the comments section or via our social media platforms. Your feedback helps us shape our content and uncover new topics that matter to our listeners. If this episode resonated with you, we kindly ask that you rate and review this show on your preferred podcast platform. Sharing this podcast with friends and family helps us reach more listeners and continue delivering content you enjoy. For more information about the podcast, the host, or our parent company, please visit the link in this episode's description. Also visit us on YouTube and Rumble to see and hear every content produced by Algebra Productions. Thank you once again for your time and support. Until next time, stay tuned and stay inspired.